2: Hello, out there. Morris speaking. Welcome to episode 164 of Love That Album podcast, proudly part of the Pantheon network of music discussion podcasts. So glad you could join me. Now, this was going to be a really, really, really long podcast. The whole idea behind this was I was going to be speaking to two people. One, Jeff Apter, the author of Friday on My Mind, The Life of George Young. And I was also going to speak with Nathan Wilcox, the host of let it roll podcast about the music of the easy beats specifically in relation to the double album anthology absolute anthology 1965 to 1969 now the conversation with Jeff went for about an hour or the edited version goes down to about an hour however the unedited version of the conversation that I had with Nathan Wilcox turns out something like about three hours and a quarter three hours and 20 minutes now adding those two up together and I mean obviously I will be pulling some ums and ahs and stupid things that I say out of the podcast which is part of my editing manifesto but even acknowledging that I'd be editing some of the ums and ahs and other useless things that I say in that conversation out let's say I reduce it by about half an hour or something like that we still have something close to combined you know pretty much in the reach of four hours or a little under four hours of a podcast now that's no problem for me because I like a long podcast and I know where the pause button is but I know that a lot of people actually have a problem with podcasts that go on way too long let's face it the chat with Nathan Wilcox which I am not going to be cutting into parts uh, is still going to be fairly long for some people but just learn to pause and come back when you have more time if you can't listen to the whole thing in one hit but what I thought I'd do just to be nice is I'll separate the chats and the episode that you're about to hear is my conversation with Jeff Apter about George Young. And in episode 165, which should be in your ear holes within about a week, week and a half, will be my conversation with Nathan Wilcox. More about that when we get to episode 165. So if you've been a long time listener to Love That Album or at least you've listened to the show over the last couple of years, then you may remember that I spoke with Jeff about his book Behind Dark Eyes, which was his biography of John English. Jeff seems to have a thing for writing biographies about Australian musicians, iconic Australian musicians. And for those of us on this side of the planet, that's very, very exciting. But we hope that anyone in the Northern Hemisphere who wants to know something about the musicians who we've grown grown up with and loved, then you should really be excited by these books as well. And I'll put a link in the show notes to how you can get his books to his website. So the original plan for this month was just my conversation with Nathan. But I figured that given that Jeff has written such an excellent book on George Young, and he's something of a subject matter expert in regards to George Young and the Easy Beats and the whole Albert's music world, then I figured that a Chat with him to put the Easy Beats career and what happened to George Young and Harry Vander after the Easy Beats and put it all in historical context would make the conversation with Nathan even more interesting to the regular listeners of the show. So that's what you have here is my conversation with Jeff Apter. I hope that you enjoy it. And we're going to cover all sorts of aspects about George's work with the Easy Beats, what happened with Vander and Young, how they set up their empire in Australia. And there was a specific time between the end of the Easy Beats and before the birth of Albert's music as a cultural force in Australia with bands like ACDC and the a Angels and Rose Tattoo and artists like William Shakespeare and Flash in the Pan, which was Vander and Young's own musical outlet in the mid-70s, I thought that this was going to be a really excellent way to put all that sort of stuff into context. So the conversation with Nathan about the music, and actually a lot of that ended up being historical context as well. So a lot of history over the next couple of episodes. I thought that this would be something of interest to the listeners who might be fans of the Easy Beats or might be a fan of Vander and Young post-Easy Beats. Anyway, look, hopefully you enjoy all this. I'll come back at the end of the conversation just to talk a little bit about the next episode, which focuses on the Easy Beats beats with nathan but meanwhile enjoy my conversation with jeff apter joe will give you the contact details and then we'll be back to speak with jeff apter
1: i got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor we hope you're enjoying the show you can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com
0: or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com all part of the pantheon podcast network To keep up to date,
1: subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. i morning feels so bad Everybody seems to nag me Coming Tuesday I feel better Even my own man looks good Wednesday just don't go Thursday goes too slow
2: Welcome back to episode 164 of Love That Album. I'm welcoming back to the program author... Mr. is Jeff Apter you were last on the show two years ago it was actually this month two years ago where we spoke about your biography on John English mm, happy anniversary yeah. happy anniversary indeed that was your latest book back at the time behind dark eyes your book provided a lot of stuff about his life that I had no idea about and you've gone and done the same thing again with the book I think that you put out just before behind dark eyes that was Friday on my mind your book focuses a great deal on the easy beats in the first half of the book as well as would be expected, but you go to a lot of other areas in the book post Easy Beats because Vander and Young really had this second big life outside of being in a band of their own. So I figured that a good place to start would be to ask Jeff where you came in with Vander and Young or the Easy Beats.
0: I'm 60, what am I sixty one now? I heard St. Louis. That was the first song of theirs I heard. So I was probably when did that come out? 69? 69? Yeah. 69 yeah. So I was seven or eight years old and I heard that and I was like like, who the hell is that? You know, when I found out, I think I discovered that it was an Australian act. It was like, really? That just sounds, you know, why would an Australian act be singing about somewhere in America? You know, what's going on? It didn't make any sense. But I love the song and it really stuck with me. And then from then on in, it was as I moved into my big peak sort of music fandom period in the 70s. I remember seeing Stevie Wright at, I think it was called the Concert of the Decade at the Opera House Steps of the Forecourt. Oh, you were at that? Played, yeah, yeah. And he played Evie in full. everybody's seen the performance it's still on you can see it on youtube it was staggering It was mind-boggling you know fantastic band he was absolutely you know right in the moment i I think he was still in the middle of you know the kind of horrible drug period that he had which you know eventually killed him but um he managed to just pull something really special out of nowhere it was really magical it really was i remember being in the audience you know a hundred rows back in the blazing sun watching this guy throw himself around the opera house stage and just thinking wow i wonder what the easy beats were like you know because it's is 15 years down the line. So yeah, yeah, I sort of I was very lucky and then I saw the reunion tour in 1986. Right. And I remember that was at the Entertainment Centre in Sydney from memory and while it had great historical significance and everybody was really enjoying it and you know it was a pretty polished performance I just remember thinking Stevie Wright's just off Something's just off You know It wasn't You know It just He seemed disconnected From everything It was probably wasted My strongest memory Is this weird Sort of patter That he had on stage In between songs Mm -hmm. There was I mean People loved it And it was rapturously received And it was like Oh they're back You know How fantastic to see them Again after all these years And it just felt odd To me I think is the best way i describe it Musically it was great But there was just Something off About Stevie Wright In particular That performance Whether he was It might not have been That he was wasted It might have just been Some kind of psychological response to suddenly be playing in front of 12,000 people. I just walked away feeling a bit unsatisfied or something. It was was a really strange performance.
1: Gotta have fun in the city. Be with my girl, she's so pretty. She looks fine tonight. She is out of sight to me.
0: fortunate enough, I guess, as a listener and a fan to sort of drop in at these unusual and, and, and quite, I guess, quite significant moments in the, the whole Vandy Young, C.B. Wright career. Those were things that got me started, you know, when I was writing the book, because it's always nice to be able to draw on some kind of personal experience rather than do the deep research, which I need to do anyway. But, you know, sometimes when you can really call on a personal experience, it makes it much more fulfilling as a writer and hopefully as a reader.
2: For me, it was probably not until the Absolute Anthology album got released in the early 80s. And I think I think I picked up a copy of the double album secondhand about 84 85 for $10 when a secondhand record cost 5 or $10. <laughs> but my connection to Vander and Young, like I guess a lot of people my age, I'm only a few years younger than yourself, was through their empire in the 70s. I mean, obviously, there was George's Kid Brothers Band, some obscure little band, I don't know, can't remember the name. There, there was Flash in the Pan and there was John Paul Young and Rose Tattoo and the Angels and it didn't didn't occur to me until later on that there was this common thread between all these bands and i don't even remember when i first heard evie it probably wasn't when it was first released it was probably like Mm. a a few years later down the track as part of 3xy's list of songs that they that will never leave the playlist but i remember just sort of thinking, wow an 11 minute song which is really (laughs) like a suite of three songs with this common thread but then getting a hold of the absolute anthology in the mid 80s and realizing wow there's this whole legacy i just found it fascinating and i think i might have read glenn a baker's excellent liner notes at the time but hadn't read it in years so your book was almost like if not quite reading their history for the first time, but there was certainly a ton of stuff in there that I had absolutely no idea about. I mean, there was the ABC series of a few years ago, which I'm grateful exists but it certainly tended to play on a lot of the popular shopping list tropes.
0: It was a good recreation of an era. It looked right, and I remember seeing, in particular, those scenes when they were playing in that venue in The Cross whose name escapes me right now where you had to go down into the basement. And Those kind of scenes were really evocative, I thought. But yeah, I, I get your point. It was a very mainstream kind of
2: production. It seems incredible to me that maybe aside from one on Johnny O'Keefe, there's never been something like that about an iconic Australian band or iconic Australian performer. I'm sure that there's listeners out there who are saying do your research what about xyz yeah
0: I get your point yeah it um, in, in, to me it was as a writer it was kind of refreshing to think that there is a life for these stories to beyond writing books or whatever you know to have something like that's sort of my ultimate goal to have something picked up and produced as a streaming service miniseries something like that I think that would be fantastic there's actually a great story when they were making the Molly Meldrum series the guy because I wrote a book about Shirley Strawn, the guy who played Sher in that series was running around the set apparently waving my book saying this is the story you should be doing not this one <laughs> <laughs> And and I I get his point because it has the three acts. We know what happened at the end with poor old Shaw. Yeah, I get his point. As a piece of drama, it makes perfect sense. You've got a beginning, a middle and an end, Um, as tragic as it is. So fingers crossed
2: one day. So your book is painting the story that goes well beyond the music alone and shows a lot about social structure and class in Australia at the period that the Easy Beats came to Australia to. They're all immigrants from the UK. Ten pound poms. Ten pound poms, except for Harry. And, and Dick I don't know they the 10 pound Dutchman I don't know yeah, that's
0: right. Well, right the Youngs were 10 pound Scots weren't they to-
2: they ended up in immigrant hostels I know it's speculative but how much do you think that life in the hostels affected how the way the band performed and the way how George Young and Stevie Wright in the beginning actually wrote songs how do you think life in the hostels affected their ambition because George particularly as you show in your book was extremely ambitious
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it was a great place to want to get out of, essentially. I can't talk about creative influence, really, but I could certainly say quite confidently that I spent a few months on the hostel, particularly coming the contrast between life in Glasgow and then, you know, the, the weather. You know, suddenly you're in the middle of this crazy summer. What the hell is heat? You know, they'd never experienced things like that. And there was a lot of violence there. They were living in Jiao And presented an opportunity, particularly when the Beatles really hit, a band presented the opportunity for them to get to strive for a lifestyle that was far beyond what they'd experienced on the hostel. So there was definitely a great motivation to get something going and it was the right time. You know, Like I say, the Beatles hit. It was 1964 and suddenly everything changed. The potential to be in a band and to actually be successful, make a living, see the world, meet a lot of girls. It opened up before them, I'm sure as far as George and all the other guys as well. I mean, they all met in and around the hostel. Snowy Fleet was staying in a different hostel. He was in the East Hills one. Dick Diamond from memory was living nearby as was Stevie you know they all, but they all congregated at this place and they all lived very similar working class lifestyles came from very similar working class backgrounds and saw the band as a real opportunity to live a different and, and bigger and more exciting life yeah no doubt about it
2: it's long been common knowledge that the Easy Beats were the most popular band in Australia at that time for a period and certainly the songs of Vander and Young have long been held up as one of the greatest songbooks in popular music and I want to come back to that specific. Specifically as a question later on But during that period of their popularity in Australia There were acts that sort of came and went With their popularity only in that period So, you know, Bobby and Laurie And NPD Limited from the Go label And even tougher bands that sounded more In the Easy Beats vein Like uh, the Purple Hearts featuring Lobby Lloyd uh, the, yeah, Maybe the Loved Ones as well yeah, uh, yeah. The Missing Links A little bit later on, the Loved Ones The Atlantics and the Sunsets Who went on to become Tam Shud But it seems to be that it's the Easy Beats who are the ones who are most remembered amongst people who are not necessarily dyed-in-the-wool music fans. Do you think that's because more of cultural impact or do you think that it's something about the songbook that still resonates more so with Australian listeners?
0: That's interesting. I think songs definitely, you know, George and Harry and and early on Stevie um, just wrote these great, punchy, very accessible, very commercial, but very clever, cleverly crafted songs. But the image as I mean, they probably found a way to present themselves that was just slightly more. I say sophisticated, just slightly more unique than most of their peers. Ted Albert, his backing very early on was paramount. They, you know, they essentially had a bank, you know, the Easy Beats. And Albert went to play such a significant role in, in George and Harry's subsequent career. Not a lot of other bands had that sort of support. You know, let's face it, the Easy Beats through what? How long were they together? It was what, five years, six years? Must have spent a fortune. Must have spent an absolute fortune in studio costs and things, which was never, ever earned back in any way I mean, they had one big hit internationally and that was essentially it. So they had something that a lot of bands didn't have, which was financial support. Although they were never making a million dollars, they still had the opportunity to keep recording, to travel overseas, to record over there and spent most of their time in the UK in the studio. So the bills must have been extensive. But because Ted Albert was such a true believer in in particularly Harry and George, I think he saw them as, you know, I think Ted had a sort of vision of an Australian Motown and he saw Harry and see the role that Harry and George would play in that, you know, the band was a lifespan for that, and that was inevitable. But I think he saw a much bigger picture than that. So, yeah, um I think they, you know, they looked slightly different. Stevie Wright, you couldn't take your eyes off him. Harry and George weren't bad-looking roosters themselves, you know. So there was a lot, you know, musically, musicians would come and see them play, but also a lot of girls would turn up because they were good-looking young guys, you know, playing in a rock band. So those simple things, they really covered a lot of different bases, if you know what I mean. I'm sure there were a lot of musos standing at the back of Easy Beets, going, Oh yeah. I suppose they're all right yeah, yeah. You know what I mean you know the guys the ones who lean against the bar and like yeah all right,
2: yeah, okay. all the girls want to take them home and all the boys reluctantly want to buy them a beer
0: that's exactly and that's a really good way of describing I think the impact that they had but like I said there was that one particular player in the background Ted Albert having his support essentially from what 1964 65 onwards and for Harry and George it continued for the next 30 years up until Ted died
2: it seems like it's an obvious comparison but Ted Albert really was the Brian Epstein of the easy beats because like Brian he came from a family that was older and more conservative in what they did but Ted was the young one and said I want to support this and so they said "All right, Ted off you go do your young person thing
0: business was music but not the way Ted envisaged it it was songbooks, it was musical instruments you know there's this great story that the Alberts were such an integral part of Sydney I guess what you'd now call A-list celebrity is that the Summers season didn't begin until their boat the boomerang sailed through the heads of sydney harbour it was that kind of stuff they were a very very big part of the sydney social scene sydney elite they were very wealthy and ted was sort of wasn't the black sheep because he continued with the family business but he had a different vision for the family business i think brian epstein is good i think he was also a lot like barry Gordy of motown too i think he had that vision of you know creating a musical empire and when you look at the diversity of stuff that eventually came and was produced in albert's it had a touch of motown about it. You know, you, a lot of different styles of music. It was almost like you had a list of, we need a bubblegum pop act William Shakespeare. Okay, cool. You know, we need a female singer. Oh, let's get Alison McCall. We need, a, you know, a couple of hard rock bands. Let's get ACDC. You know, everything, every category seemed to be covered really adequately with George and Harry's fingerprints on each one. You quite can't stress how significant a role he played in their evolution, I guess, and the simple fact that maintaining a career, George and Harry, for like I say, 30, 40 years, whatever it was. Yeah,
2: long time. It's, it's actually a really interesting point that you bring up there about diverse acts like John Paul Young and William Shakespeare because Mm. uh, for those listeners out there who weren't in Australia in the 70s, so Albert's the label that, well actually it wasn't really a label when the Easy Beats were around they were on Parlophone in Australia but Albert's was a publishing company but when it became a record label in the 70s and Vander and Young, they had their fingerprints across all these different types of acts, you know, John Paul Young's and William Shakespeare's for the, the disco and the pop and men Rose Tattoo and the Angels and even them doing Flash in the Pan for themselves in a way because we're always talking about the great American songbook songwriters we're just talking about like the, the pop era we're not even talking about what happened like in the 30s and the 40s uh, or the musical composers like Rodgers and Hammerstein or anything like we're just thinking about Lamont Dozier, Holland uh, and the Brill building teams and the like and Vander and Young went for I guess a lot longer than those teams and were a lot more diverse but having read in your book that George Young was very frustrated with a lot of the places where the band went musically. He didn't like what he called flower power. He didn't like psychedelia. And yet probably side three of this absolute anthology where they take a break from the hardcore rock and roll poppy sort of things and they're doing things a lot more adventurous like uh, The Shame Just Drained and Falling Off the Edge of the World. George Young called it all bullshit. So how did he reconcile the fact that years later he was writing and producing Using songs like "My Little Angel" and <laughs> well, there's, there's one key "Standing in or the, or the Rain." The songs you just mentioned were hits, <laughs> but he didn't know before he signed John Paul Young, and the, he he said right okay this is what we envisage for you why wasn't he signing only bands like the angels or rose tattoo or, or heart just straight out no bullshit rock and roll bands because he believed that that was what people wanted and that's yeah, what he loved well,
1: i
0: think his, his frustration when instant went in the easy beat stemmed from the simple fact that they had this huge worldwide hit Friday right in my mind bowie covered it it was a number a top 10 hit in america and the uk and it really established them briefly as they were the band of the moment you know i think his frustration stemmed from the fact that his and probably Harry's inklings as musicians steered them away from writing more commercial songs. And a lot of the stuff that you name-checked is a good example of, of how diverse and eclectic they were. But George was frustrated by the simple fact that they forgot to record any more hits. You know, what was their next hit? It was St. Louis. When they got back, or it was um Good Time, when they got back to doing what they'd been doing back in 1965, just being a rock and roll band. George, for all his musical exploration sort of depended on hits you know he had to make a living and I think he lost sight of that I'm not saying that he was pushed in that direction I'm sure he made those choices but when it came to post Easy Beats working at Albert's it was the house of hits they wanted to produce hit songs they were, they had their harder rock stuff which I guess was a little less targeted commercially but they had very much a vision in mind is to have songs on the charts to do well you know commercially to write hit songs and I, you know I think maybe George also came to the realisation, and I think it's an important one, is that there's as much craft in writing a hip-hop song as there is in writing something like, I don't know, Falling Off the Edge of the World, you know, which I think is, you know, an amazing ballad, but it was never going to be a number one hit. And then George and Harry, once they got into the studio at Alberts in Sydney, they were playing with tape loops and being very experimental on pop songs. So I think he got his creative urges were fulfilled, and at the same time, his commercial instincts were fulfilled too. So he sort of found the middle ground that perhaps he ignored in that second half the Easy Beats career. Like, yeah, that's where his frustration stemmed from. I don't think he dismissed those songs. He said, yes, he did. He said, yeah, it was shit. But I think he was just frustrated by the simple fact that they would forgot to try to record hits as well as experiment in the studio.
2: What seems unusual to me, though, is like about 1967, 68, music was changing. It was mm. no longer about the two and a half minute pop hit. Looking in England and in America, we were hearing all sorts of things that were playing around with the song art form. And sure. the Beatles, and George adored the Beatles, but mm, if, if mm. they would do, if they were getting big hits with "All You Need Is Love," and okay, I appreciate that the Easy Beats were only as big as the Beatles in Australia, and only at a point that some of these songs, these magnificently crafted songs that they didn't become hits. I mean, was it something because like I think you said something in the book about in, in Australia they were I mean, there were other bands obviously, but they were one of a kind. But in England they were just another band amongst thousands of bands all trying to make it the same way they were.
0: Look at their rivals. I mean the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, the Nudie Blues, the you know, the list is endless. It's it was a, a golden era in rock pop history. They were lucky enough to be thrust into the middle of it and to have some impact. But the competition was pretty thick. I mean, these people are, you know, the uh, those bands that I mentioned were producing great singles almost on a monthly basis, as well as doing art projects, as well as doing Tommy, as well as doing Sgt. Pepper's. These bands still had the ability somehow to cough up hits at the same time. So I guess that's what George Foddy, it sort of missed that ability. But what you said about these great productions that they came up with at that time, that says a lot about their int- con- the continued interest in the band now. You know, as we spoke off mic earlier, you've got people in Canada, you've got people in America, America got people all around the world who are digging into the back catalogue of this band and going god they're amazing why weren't they superstars mm. you know so, and a lot of it is art they're discovering those you know studio pieces that George and Harry really crafted and really put a lot of work into creating but as I say you know George just felt we should have had hits to go with it maybe not necessarily with those songs but with other songs that would have kept us current and you know I guess in the public eye and on the charts so that we could go and do all these other things so that's what he felt they missed out on and also the word, you know the usual band problems, I think Stevie Wright's drug problems had started. I don't think Dick Diamond was, he was raised in a very religious family and I don't think, I think he had this conflict about being in this hedonistic rock and roll band (laughs) and also being quite, you know, his parents were very evangelical and it was, he ended up becoming a minister, so uh, we know which way he ended up going and uh, I think Snowy was uh, the most pragmatic of the band you know, he ended up running a building company very successfully. It's fair to say that not all members of the band were completely convinced that this was going to be the only thing they ever did. There was a point there where they probably just saw it as a, an adventure. Leave Australia, go to the UK, see how we go. Oh, we had a hit. How fantastic was that? We toured America. That's great. But maybe that was enough for some members of the band. You know, maybe George and Harry really were the driven ones and Stevie was the one who enjoyed being a rock star.
2: Certainly, he was one of the greatest front men. He set the template. I was watching on YouTube. I've lost count how many times I've rewatched this over the last few weeks, but their performance of Good Times on Beat Club, the German show.
1: Yeah,
0: German show. yeah. And yeah. Yeah, he's like,
2: like Robert Romani at Comanichi isn't he? He's amazing, yes, you know? Yes, yes. The, the camera's like on the ground and he's just jumping away and then he does the splits at the end of the song. It's oh, absolutely amazing. I'm sure that Bon Scott was watching and thinking, <laughs> yeah. I think I, yeah, I like this Stevie Wright fella.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's a very good anal- analogy, actually. I think old Bond he had ambitions to be a rock star and uh, I reckon he would have taken a few pages out of the Stevie Wright playbook for sure. <laughs> on stage and off.
2: Mentioned a bit about their financial situation and mm. okay, taking aside. The fact that you know they didn't really do that well beyond Friday on my mind in the States and in parts of Europe. But they had quite a lot of hit singles in Australia. And the end of the book, or not the end of the book, but the end of the section about the Easy Beats, George comes back to his wife after their final disastrous tour of Australia in 69 with about nine shillings in his pockets. <laughs> a- uh, that makes no sense to me unless Mike Vaughan, their, their manager, I mean, he only gave and like here, have ten dollars a week to live off. Which, okay, to ten bucks a week in nineteen sixty-five is not ten dollars in twenty twenty-three, but it's still not a hell of a lot of money.
0: I mean, no, don't, you know, it's fair to say that uh, you've been in bands. I mean, the excitement of being in a band um, and being a re- recording band, my God, like, oh, we're making records. You don't think about money
2: until you discover where did the money go. <laughs> you know, for years, the most infamous story in pop music history was you know Dick James and all these people, you know, taking their cut from the Lennon and McCartney songbook they might not have gotten at the time everything that they were owed but they were still millionaires and the fact that the Vander and young or or really for that matter Wright and young songbook which was yeah. where those were hit singles undeniable hit singles in australia and yet at the end of it because they owed money to studios i don't get it i thought like Maybe I, I know it was a different time, and with that, musicians are a lot cleverer about business dealings now. But it just still seems—I'm I'm flabbergasted to think that at the end of a, such a run, that they still owed money. Someone was taking the money, and it wasn't them.
0: The business people always get paid first. The manager always gets his cut. The pub music publisher always takes their cut. The record company always takes their costs, and what's left is for the band, essentially. So, yeah, I mean, the Beatles were still only getting pennies on the record sold on each record sold until uh, they sort of wise up to it and I think that was when after Epstein died if I remember when they brought in Alan Klein and all that drama happened I think they started to realize that they weren't people like Dick James were making a lot more money than they were even though they were successful I guess with you also got a factor in with the easy beat to travel they based themselves overseas the costs would have been astronomical I think uh, you know you had to maintain a band it's not like they could go home at the end of every day they had shared houses in London and things like that very similar to the early ACDC story as well you know where they set themselves up in a band house in London, weren't making any money probably until, boy, late 70s, I guess, you know, around Highway to Hell so it's not an uncommon story it is a bit of a, a mind blower when you think about how successful they were but, you know, it was just the nature of five young guys who weren't looking weren't thinking about money, they are just thinking about, you know, success and enjoying the ride and then suddenly and it's such a classic story, you know suddenly at the end of that journey, I think there's a scene um, I think I depicted in the book I've certainly seen it, maybe I saw, maybe it was in the TV series, where at the end of the Australian Australian tour, you know, I think they're up at the cross somewhere and they go to the office of their manager and I think they all got, it might've been $800 each. And that was essentially the sum of their entire five, six year journey as an easy beat. What a kick in the pants that would have been. As you say, by the time George got back to London, he'd spent all that on travel. And uh, yeah, I think it was nine shillings. He had a bottle of scotch and he had a teddy bear for his daughter and he dropped the bottle of scotch before he got
1: inside.
0: (laughs) So talk about starting with nothing. That second phase of his career, he literally had nothing.
2: We've heard stories about band members who don't write Ending up with very little in their pocket by the end of it But the songwriter, that's the sweet honey gig But even Vander and Young there It's, it's just, yeah, it's absolutely tragic but
0: It would be interesting, and you know, I have no way to access the information To see whether there was a steady trickle of Easy Beats royalties In the next 20 years after they broke For Particularly for George and Harry And I often wonder, I mean, okay, we know Stevie Wright was probably not I don't think Stevie had an accountant on speed dial or anything <laughs> <laughs> I think the money that came in went out pretty quickly but he would have been seeing a trickle of income for a long time radio airplay record sales and you know every it seemed like every 5 years or so there was another easy beats tribute you know there was quite been quite a number of those those tribute records so there would have been I think obviously for Harry and George there was a much bigger income stream once they became producers and songwriters for hire but I would have thought that there would have been a steady trickle of money over the next 20 years I would guess yeah not a huge amount. I mean, I know what it's like as a writer where you're depending on, uh, you know, a stream of royalties from different projects to basically keep you afloat. So I understand how that goes. But, you know, if you if you become a bit more business savvy, which I reckon George and Harry definitely did, they made sure that all those mistakes that they made, and again, it's in the book about all the mistakes we made, both creatively and professionally, they were not going to repeat. And they certainly made sure that Malcolm and Angus in ACDC learned those lessons that um, Harry and George had learned in the easy Beat to make Make sure they didn't repeat them with ACDs.: Yeah
2: oh look, I was going to ask you about that specifically. I've got this picture in my mind of like a, of a great movie where whoever's playing George uh, we get a close-up of his face and he's speaking to Malcolm and Angus and say, "You will not make the mistakes that, that we made. Oh no, it will not happen and you get this dramatic orchestral music That
0: was, isn't it? It's a big kind of you know Yoda or uh, maybe even you know Darth Vader. <laughs> you will not make my mistake." <laughs> I can see it. But yeah, I, I can kind of see John Cusack playing George for some reason. I don't know why. No. The younger John no. no. Not working?
2: No, not no. working for me, no. Um, see you soon. If I think of someone, I'll send you a note and let you know. I can't think of anyone at the moment.
1: When I was just 12 years old My daddy set me on his knee he Said now listen here my boy, this is how it
2: So let's talk just for a moment about Stevie himself. You've already sort of gone and made the note that really Stevie Wright, the front man, the the guy who all the girls lusted after and was making sure that he was enjoying himself. But he was the one who had the hardest time. He didn't have women screaming after him anymore. He wasn't a public limelight. And George got him a job, I think, as the cleaner at, at Albert's Records, anything to keep him going, and then said, you know, we're going to get you in the limelight again. And they recorded Hard Road. Fantastic album, and even more so than Friday on My Mind, I think Evie, when you mention the name Stevie Wright, you're going to think of Evie more than you're going to think of any Easy Beat song. That's just my perception, I don't know. I agree. But what do you think was in George's mind where he said, I have to look after him? A band splits, a band splits, you keep in contact, you don't keep in contact. But why did he feel responsible, do you think, for uh, looking after Stevie?
0: You know, it was certainly, there was a personal connection. They'd spent all those years together. You know, they'd been in this band that, that had sampled success and been down that, had that shared journey. I think he could see that Stevie was a bit of a mess and probably didn't really have anybody looking out for him. Um, And I also think of a certain amount of guilt, you know, when, as you said, Stevie co-wrote those early songs with George, but then George went on to work with Harry and really Stevie was kind of cast aside as a songwriter and didn't have that, I don't know, determination, dedication, discipline, I guess, to write songs that George and Harry did. So I think George certainly, I think they both felt a certain amount of guilt that they'd taken that away from Stevie. They also knew he was a great singer. I think they knew that he still had something fantastic left in him. And that that was well. I I like all those. uh, Backlight Bruiser, Hard Road. I think they're great records. And you know, ultimately, Eddie was the sort of crowning glory of that—the greatest eleven minutes of Australian rock and roll that we'll ever hear. You know, just mind-boggling stuff. You know, and his performance is just fantastic. I mean, you know, you could make a movie out of that one song. It's so—it's got everything. And his performance is just incredible. And like I said, seeing him perform that live was one of the biggest moments of my musical youth. Huge Yeah, it was just well, it's just I just you know, and it was in the middle of a lot of the stuff you were hearing on 2SM at the time, you know, which was great, but it was just, you're hearing Sherbet play How's That, and you're hearing, um, I don't know, Marsha Hines sing her hits, and then suddenly Stevie Wright gets up and sings Evie, with, and I'm trying to remember, Cheetah were on backing vocals, mm. Kevin Boric was on guitar, I think Tony Mitchell from Sherbert was on bass, you know, it was just, and maybe even Alan Sandow playing drums? I can't recall, but it was just, you know, the super, the Aussie super group of the time, but Stevie just, yeah, I'm just repeating myself, but you know, it's just mindful It really was. The more I talk about it, the more I cast myself back to that, that afternoon, you know, I'm thinking, holy crap, this guy's fantastic. we going back to your question. Yeah, look, I think George felt a certain amount of guilt and also some responsibility. And also he knew that Stevie was a great singer. He wanted to give him great songs. You know, he thought that he could make, still make great records, which Evie proves beyond all shadow of a doubt.
2: No, definitely one of the greatest front men and one of the great singers in the Australian rock and roll. And, and also to have come out from that era, because we also had... Um, like in the 60s you know Jerry Humphreys of The Loved Ones one of the great rock and roll screamers ever I think but you know, we're not talking about him as much And but Jim Keyes like yeah, I'm so glad that Jim Keys had that final shot to record a couple of albums let's talk about an era that we spoke about before we started recording that was the four year binge as uh, George Young called it so for those people out there who haven't read your book yet or may not be aware of Vander and Young history there was this period Straight after the Easy Beasts broke up, and up until they returned to Australia. And I never knew anything about this. I mean, growing up, mm-hmm. I knew about all those Albert's artists that we'd spoken about earlier on in the show, your John Paul Youngs, etc., etc. But I had no idea that Vander and Young had their songwriting names and recording behind basically, I guess, what would have been like the London equivalent of the Wrecking Crew. Their brother, uh, Alex Young, who stayed in England when, oh, it was stay- in Scotland when um, the rest of the band had emigrated to Australia. He oh, yeah.
0: was in a band signed by Apple, for God's yes. sake. You know, I mean, yes, great. You
2: know, he had some success.
0: Great great fruit signed by Apple. I think that's very fitting. Oh, you? I do, indeed.
2: So he became like one of their go-to musicians in this band, the Glasgow Mafia. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of these songs. So as we were speaking about off mic before, as well as doing like a whole chapter or two on that period and talking about all these... Singles that were released, and some of them were fake bands just to put out a name out there, and some of them were real. Ted Mulry was part of that early period. You know, he was the balladeer before before the before the uh, Ted Mulry gang became like the the cock rock band that they were. Like before
0: Ted became Ted, he was Steve. Yes,
2: yes. So I want to just talk a little bit about some of these acts. I'd love you to tell the listeners out there fantastic story about inverted Comma's band called Paintbox, and they had a single. uh, I think it might have been the B. East side there's the one that I heard. A song called, where's it called Can I Get to Know You? a single had a front cover that led you to believe that this was a band but it wasn't the band it was just tell tell us that story
0: they wanted to basically create a, a look for this band that said Soul Brother. You know, it was a great period of soul music at that time. Again, I guess maybe um, there's some Motown thinking on George and Harry's part. So they basically just went down to, they recorded this song and went down to the pub and they found think, four or five appropriate young West Indian guys, probably bought them a few drinks and said, do you mind just coming back and posing for a photo? And that's the shot on the front cover. They just some guys from the pub and it's perfect. They look great. And you think, oh, wow, this must be some new band that's, you know, Playing in New York or, uh, you know, they're maybe in Detroit. No, they were just a few blokes who drank down the local pub near where George and Harry had this little studio, you know, trying to come up with their own version of the drill building. I I just thought there was a stroke of genius.
2: All along, it's just Harry and George and their session musicians and Alex, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, there was Eddie Ivana and they wrote this great um, biography about Eddie and who he was and his background. Eddie Ivana was just Harry doing vocals on a song and Harry actually said he was relieved it wasn't a hit because he didn't want to go and have to go and pretend to be Eddie Ivana on top of the class. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant bridge between the Easy Beats and what subsequently happened back in Australia. Right. It's these four years. It's a real apprenticeship for them. They'd learned a lot about production and songwriting in the Easy Beats. They'd worked in the best studios in London with some really, really good people. And now they had to put it into action as, you know, songwriters and producers for hire. And some of the people they worked with did go on to big careers. I mean, there was um, is it uh, someone Pickett who went up it was in the band Sailor, who had a couple of big hits. It's David Hemmings, the actor, who was in Barbarella and Blow well, Up. He came in as a, a sort of lyricist for hire. I've got all these great lyrics. So all these people were moving in and out of their world that actually went on to do great things, as Harry and George did, of course. But it was—it must have been just such a, a funny... They were really... It was real hand-to-mouth. They did. I think they did some commercials and jingles and things like that as well, just to survive. But as an education, like a musical education, uh, we need a soul song. Let's come up with something. We need a heavy rock and roll song. We need something, as you said, that sounds a little bit like critics. <laughs> yeah, we can come up with one of those. That's what they replicated when they came back to Australia, you know, when they were working with people as diverse as Rose Tattoo and William Shakespeare. They developed this ability to write stuff almost
2: on call. I made a YouTube playlist, which I'll be including in the show notes for this episode of the podcast, but there was this uh, guy, John Miles, the song Why mm. Don't You Love Me, which was very Southern soul. Uh, there was mm. Earl Dalby, uh, Can't Wait for September, which was almost like a pruner sort of deal and there was a group i don't know whether this was real or not but it called the hendries a song called life is getting better which was sunshine pop and a million miles away from anything that you'd associate with what you know about vander and young so do you think that they basically looked on this period as let's just perfect our craft we'll worry about the finances later or did they always intend No, we want to see what sticks and hopefully we'll have some hits
0: well again i think and it's very hard to prove 100 but i'm pretty sure that ted albert was backing them even at that time giving them some kind of financial support just to keep going because he always knew that Harry and George, when he set up Albert Productions that Harry and George he was going to get them back to Sydney he was going to get them back he was going to make them an offer they couldn't refuse essentially and not in the sinister way so i think they he they was possibly you know he's probably paying their rent you know at that time i would imagine because they were making a lot of money out of it they were trying everything they were looking for hits but they probably didn't really have the record company support for a lot of this stuff you know to come out on little labels suddenly they'd be in an obscure cover of a song in German that might be top 10 you know those kind of things were happening to them so it was, it was very random to me it, it didn't seem to have a lot of the business structure the record company business structure that they subsequently did with Albert's and I'm sure Ted Albert was watching going this is great what they're doing is great they're really this is exactly what I wanted them to do to perfect the craft of studio you know production songwriting all that stuff that they were developing even more so than in the easy beats that like i said they brought back and then they just hit Pater back in australia so yeah i think they were just getting by i think ted was helping them out i think they were just trying anything and i'm sure some days it was just for a laugh you know let's go and get some blokes from the pub and make a photo and invent a band you know that kind of stuff it looked like a lot of fun oh, i bet it was <laughs> you know if you're a musician if you're a budding you know producer songwriter and you got access to a studio i couldn't imagine it being more fun you get all these likely lads coming in too there's some quite colorful characters that they were working with Everybody was hustling, essentially. Musicians would come in who were really trying to build their careers. And for many of them, Harry and George were a really handy stepping stone. Like I say, the guy from Sailor and a few other people who went on to subsequently quite successful pop careers came in and out of that studio. So yeah, it was it was a really, and, and as a writer, uh, I remember when I learned about this, I just saw, there's the bridge. There's your second act. Easy Beats, four-year binge, Albert's. You know, it just it just fitted in so beautifully and it explained so much about how these these guys who are in the easy beats writing you know sorry and wedding ring suddenly could come to australia and write lovers in the air for me it was a real head scratcher it was like how did that happen so this explains all of that you know that is for you and the songs i mean there's something like is it 50 or so different productions is a staggering amount and really i've got the help of a, an easy Beat of van de young obsessive in america who had all this information at hand who very generously compiled a, a sort of index for the book of all these recordings and your playlist is great i mean yeah i I think people will really enjoy it because there's some great songs in there. Songs that subsequently became hits like Pasadena and so on, which were in different versions um, back then. So there was some gold amongst this stuff.
2: Certainly the songs in the playlist, they're not second-rate, second-hack type of things. I mean, they are perfecting their craft, but there's some bona fide great songs. But this is not Harry Vander and George Young starting from day one. This is them saying, right, this is our next phase. It's not like they're new upcoming songwriters. They're saying, right, what do we want to do now? And I I just found that a fascinating part of your book is it was something that I had no knowledge of whatsoever. The start of their next phase, I mean, I I tend to sort of see what that uh, part three, if you will, them returning to a australian going through all these bands but you know we can't not talk for a couple of minutes about acdc and the part that i just found this fascinating how they started i didn't know that colin burgess of the masters apprentices was like acdc's original drummer
0: they did have people in and out early on yeah who might play you know there's, there's a peter clack as well i just the other day i got an email from his daughter he wants to write a book like, why oh that's right he was in acdc wasn't he yeah i forgot so yeah there were there are a few people who drifted in and out before the to me the the classic lineup
2: i just also found it interesting once again through your book it was george's sense of family loyalty and reciprocated by angus and malcolm that when they go off to america and atlantic i think it was it said no no no, no no we don't want those producers we're going to give you a new radio friendly producer and that just made no sense I, okay i mean i grant you that it's true that what appeals in australia doesn't necessarily appeal outside of australia but i thought one thing that always distinguished those albert's recordings was the clarity of those vander and young productions you listen to those early acdc songs i think that one of the certainly my favorite acdc album is uh let there be rock mm. and the, yeah, okay. that's where they sort of went from sounding like a hard pop band to being a really full-on hard rock. And
0: yeah, Power Age does it for me, but it's exactly the same but thing. It's, yeah.
2: the production is incredible. So I can't imagine why the American studio, why Atlantic was saying, no, that's not commercial enough.
0: Let's face it, who did they want? They wanted them to work with Eddie Kramer, right, who was probably on contract to Atlantic. You know, there's all these there's all these things in the background that are not very sexy, um, <laughs> but there's a way of... It. And yeah, I, I see it in my life of work. So you see it in films, you know, uh, I don't want an Australian to do it. Like I've just recently wrote a book on Keith Urban and I've just recently sold it into America. Finally, it's the first one of my books, actually not the first that's been picked up, but the first that I feel there's confidence in the simple fact that an Australian could write a book that might do well in America. Yeah, there's, there's always stuff in the background. Like I say, with Atlantic, it was probably they wanted to get Eddie Kramer on one of their records and thought, ah, oh, well, they haven't sold many records so far, so let's sack the other other guys you know they're working with and find an American and then the end of that story is they went back to Harry and George and they said well if that's what's going to keep you going you're going to have to do it Eddie Kramer lasted about 10 minutes <laughs> there's, a, there's a story about Malcolm calling Michael Browning who was their manager saying you got to get us out of here this guy's hopeless you know he might have recorded Hendrix but he's not fit to work with us or something like that and um, that led them to mutt Lang, which of course you know then they exploded and uh, were crazy but yeah I would have thought but you know the other side of that too come to think of it is that Harry and George came to work with ACDC later on. You know, they went back to the uh, much further down the line. So, in fact, I think the last record George produced was an ACDC record.
2: Was it, it like Ice? Or...
0: It on. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So, you know, their creative relationship with them continued. You know, they had to step aside. And can you imagine how tough that was for Malcolm and Angus to come home and say, "Well, oh, here's the story. Our label's going to drop us unless we work with different producers. And George and Harry, to their credit, said, it's... you know,
2: that's what you're going to have to do. Well, I mean, all, all along, as we've been discussing throughout this conversation, George. George was as much about the business as he was about the creativity, so he surely would have understood.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. that's what we we're talking about. That he took everything from the Easy Beats that they did wrong, and one of those was not really understanding how the you know the
2: business of show worked.
0: And um, you know, he certainly made sure that his brothers didn't make those same mistakes. The other thing too, George in particular was never off ACDC's radar. I'm sure that, and I'm pretty sure I, I write about it, is that even when they were commissioned to go and work with other people, this still sending demos and recordings back to George to see what he thinks so he was never really outed never really pushed aside he was always their mentor if nothing else and I think for years and years you know even after Bond Scott died I'm pretty sure that they would have been using him as a, a, a sounding board for what they were doing you know hey you know George can you listen to this what do you think you know he really was a huge influence on them and there's that great conversation that he has with Malcolm and Angus early on and Malcolm and Angus come to him they, I think they've recorded one album they've had some success and they said should we be experimenting more should we be you know trying to be more than just this pub rock Oz rock band and that's where george you know classically historically famously said to them you know no you are in the most fortunate position of any band i know you know what you are early on stick with it they've been making the same record for the last 40 years so you
2: know. <laughs> but you know interestingly enough on the creative side of it your book points out that in the early days their songwriting wasn't much up to scratch and george said to them let's play this song on the piano shall we because if it doesn't sound good on the piano, an instrument which ACDC have never used, to the best of my knowledge. If it doesn't sound good on the piano, it's shit.
0: Yeah, yeah what a great um, litmus test. A photo, I, I'm not sure if it's in this book, but I've seen a Philip Morris photo of George, Malcolm and Angus sitting at the piano, and I'm sure George is test driving. I don't know. Jailbreak. rock. All of <laughs> <laughs> Jailbreak. Yeah. yeah, let's see if it works on the piano. Yep, it's good to go. You know, stuff like that is fantastic, and yeah, like I say, he was such a, a mentor and a role model and an influence and a sounding board, and just, he was the ACDC DC Whisperer. Yeah. I think <laughs> <laughs> even when he wasn't working directly with them, he was still part of that whole circle. Sure. You know, it's sort of like I don't know if you've watched Daisy Jones and the Six. My wife
2: but, read the book and then watched the show. Yeah, okay,
0: well the six there aren't six members of the band, but there's this partner of one of the lead singer, and I always saw George as sort of that the extra member of ACDC, probably throughout their entire career. I would think that he was always there in some shape or form. It might have been business, you know. Hey, are we getting a good deal here. What do you think, George? You know. He was, he was always there and thereabouts with them and and a, and a huge influence. And really, the, he, was, he was sort of their guru, I guess, particularly when it came to what musical direction they shouldn't take. Because <laughs> yeah. he said to them, you know, my problem with the Easy Beats is we tried to be too many things. We tried to be a psychedelic rock band. We tried to be write big ballads and when we should have been writing more Friday on My Minds or, you know, St. Louis.
2: But even Friday on My Mind isn't like a typical rock song that they'd written from the early days. It's, I'll probably go into this more into my discussion with Nate But another thing that I think ACDC took off, certainly the right young period of songwriting, was riff-making. ACDC took it to, they made a whole new art out of it. But you think like those songs like For My Woman or Sorry or She's So Fine, they're riff-based songs rather than compositional-based songs, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You're absolutely right. I mean, they've been building songs around Malcolm's riffs. Even after he died.
2: Sang a song, no time. I want to ask about one final aspect of the Vander and Young compositional team, and we've already gone and mentioned them by name fairly early on in this uh, conversation, but flash in the pan. I remember as a kid hearing Hey St. Peter on the radio, and actually I think one of the few 45s I've still got is of Hey St. Peter. It's a wonderfully funny film clip. There's there's a, like a ninety second instrumental midsection with synthesizers and orchestration, or maybe one with one of the other, uh, and it's sort of a very uncommercial part of the song where they're going away from the lyrics, and it's a real experiment for the two of them, and yet it worked. This was the sort of thing that they were trying in the Easy Beats to do that didn't work for them commercially but here they put a 90 second instrumental bit in the middle of this song interrupts this song but personally I love it and I think it worked so in a way maybe that was a second coming of Vander and Young as performers Uh, Mm, not just mm. like I think
0: they missed being in a band you
2: know right right. I mean I I listen to this song and like in hindsight I listened to some of their 80s material war games early morning wake up call sounds like Mm. the sort of song Mm. that would have been perfectly at home in an 80s dance club. Not Absolutely. something you would have said in 1967, or not even something you would have said in the mid 1970s. Oh, they
0: were covered by Grace Jones
2: and all kinds. Exactly, of exactly.
0: I think, I think they missed being in a band, even though it was an, it was a very 80s band. You know, they were a video and recording band.
2: Do you think they were ahead of their time? Because, I mean, they didn't quite get to that stage yet where they went in the 80s. And I was surprised to find out from your book that they had, like, about six albums in yeah, going yeah, to the
0: yeah, early like, 90s. I was surprised when I found it out doing research for the book. I and mean, it turns out that I've heard from at least one reliable source that they were working on a final Flash in the Pan album when George died. So maybe there's something somewhere, because I, I don't think Harry's been in particularly good health So probably not foremost on his mind but i wonder whether there's something that might see light of day eventually which would be really interesting to hear how they sounded in the 21st century because you're right they were were trailblazers they understood the power of video they really got that and had a lot of fun with it too and you know obviously by then they were studio masters so they could really tinker and and play with sounds and styles and 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 do it successfully i think it says a lot about the confidence that comes from having a hit record or or a series of hit records only had that one international hit with the easy beats but now we're flash in the pan appear they've had how many domestic hits in australia 20 you know maybe more and songs like lovers in the air which have gone global as well so they've had a lot of success they're being again being recorded by international artists they're really breaking out so they would have had a lot more confidence to say hmm, let's form our own band let's make a you know a sort of uh, i mean we're not a performing band we're almost like a virtual band you know flash in the pan so you know it was yeah it was quite a revolutionary kind of concept particularly at the, at the dawn of the video age too and they really knew how to take advantage of that. Well, so, that's,
2: yeah. that's that's a great point because we're always sort of saying or always hearing stories that the real dawn of the video age was the early 80s once MTV became a big thing in America. But there were performance videos which in, in the 70s, which is not exactly what they're referring to when they talk about the MTV age. But what Harry and George were doing with Hay St. Peter or Dan Among the Dead Men, maybe with a little bit more production spit and polished, they would have been great 80s videos. People would have seen them and said, that's as good as anything that came out Well, we
0: that. had Countdown. And I mean, never underestimate the impact of Countdown and True. and the realisation for a lot of people who performed on Countdown that videos really carried a lot of weight. I mean, Countdown broke people like Blondie and Meatloaf and the Motels. And there was a lot of bands that weren't having, weren't yet achieving success at home that had success first. I think even ABBA. Countdown played a lot of, a big role in the the sort of, I don't know, internationalising of ABBA. So never underestimate. And I'm sure, you know, uh, they loved ACDC. I mean, they produced videos for ACDC, they gave them, you know, three hundred dollars to go down to St Kilda Pier and shoot some. Oh, sorry, there was skyhooks, but I know oh, they sent them out to the back of. Oh, where was it? Sunshine, wasn't it? Some Melbourne suburb to shoot Jailbreak. Oh, the outdoor
2: one, the outdoor yeah,
0: one. Yeah, a sure put five hundred dollars in the coffer for you know some some um, uh, explosives and uh, and some <laughs> convict pajamas for Angus. So you know they could see the value in that.
2: Of course, you know a simple but iconic video clip in. It's a long way to the top you know, on the oh. back of a flatbed truck. That I mean, that's we'll that's a part start. of australian music history
0: yeah you look at any you know rolling stone list of the greatest videos of all time and it's always there and you know so many great stories and i did was lucky enough to work with michael browning who was their first manager and if you have a look in the clip he's standing just at the back of the uh, just at the foot of the lorry and for some reason he's carrying a briefcase and he says to this day he has no idea why he was carrying a briefcase <laughs> he just thought a manager should do that you know a manager should do that and there's God. little things like someone handing bonnet joint and just the uh, the look of the faces of the people who are just going to work you know it's just another 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 Monday in Melbourne Was it Swanston
2: Street? It was Swanston Swanston Street, yeah yeah. And I love that it exists Not just because it's a great ACDC clip But I love being able to sort of show people overseas Saying, this is how my town used to look
0: Used to look, yeah, yeah, absolutely
2: Thanks very much, Jeff, uh, for your fascinating conversation. It's been great. What are you writing? What are you working on at the moment? huh. what am I working on? Um, a couple of things. i have just just about to wrap a biography of Neil Finn, uh, which
0: will come out in August. Um, that's my 2023 book. Not all the projects I work on, people say, oh, you must really love the music of all the people you write about. And that's not always the case. I'm often more as interested. I have to be interested in their story. You know, what happened to the behind the scenes. But in Neil Finn's case, it was, a great combination because I really love his music and I managed to write a lot about how certain songs came into existence and for instance you know he would draw on a lot of experiences that he had as a kid much much later in life to write lyrics for you know songs like Private Universe and blah 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 so it was really good fun to do and really a lesson learned never try to write about a subject and get their involvement in the book when they just joined Fleetwood Mac that's not, <laughs> that's not a good idea
2: yeah bad move
0: yeah so but you know I didn't get his input but I had worked with him on a couple of things in the past and had a lot to draw on and finally got to see them just play a few months ago a crowded house down here in Wollongong so that was a nice sort of conclusion to the book but yeah that comes out in August I've also been reworking a few of my older books I got the rights back on a number of older books and I've on sold them to a new publisher we're sort of packaging them as a series of they're calling them Australian music legends and the irony is their books about I'm just looking at the post now there's Mark Hunter, John English, the Bee Gees and John Farnham none of who were born in Australia doesn't matter right. it doesn't matter they made their, their careers here
2: if, they, if if they're successful we claim them as our own
0: exactly exactly that's, a,
2: that's that, an that's as australian as as veggie yeah
0: totally russell crowe you know well when, <laughs> when he does good work we like it but um so they've been that's been repackaged as a sort of series which which i'm really proud of and yeah just you know trying to work out what comes after that but the Neil Finn thing was very engaging and really interesting to do and that took up a good 12 months or so and my keith urban book is just about to be published in america which is a really big thing for me so that's pretty <laughs>
2: exciting. i wish you much success with that i'll put links to uh, anywhere people can find Information about your work Good books, On the, bad the books, show books, You name it, yeah Once again, huge thanks to you, Jeff For this great conversation Really, really enjoyed it uh, We'll be back in a moment You're listening to Love That Album, episode 164
1: selling postcards From a paper stand A whiskey bottle In his withered hand
2: Once again my huge thanks to jeff for joining us on episode 164 of love that album i hope you found that conversation as enjoyable as i certainly did if you want to order any of jeff's books you can go find them at your local bookstore or you can go to jeffapter.com.au order from them there and tell them that love that album sent you and i'm sure that he'll do something nice like i don't know sign an autograph or something like that i don't know anyway it was a pleasure having him on i look forward to having him back when we go to talk about jeff Buckley sometime in the next 12 months or so. I'm sure that's going to happen. And he's also got, as he said, a fine book coming out about null fun Looking forward to reading that as well. Okay. So as I said at the start of this show, I'm splitting this whole Vander and Young easy beats conversation into two shows. Episode 165, which should be at about a week and a half or so from the time that this episode is released, will be my conversation with Nathan Wilcox of the Let It Roll podcast and we'll be talking about the album the easy beats absolute anthology 1965 to 1969 the conversation is more about a specific set of songs from that album which delivers a particular arc in the band's progress more when you hear the show please feel free to get in contact with me about whether you enjoy the show don't enjoy the show think it's shit think that there's other artists that i should be focusing on rather than all this old stuff personally i like it but i'm always willing to take your suggestions on board join the facebook group send me an email all the details that joanne gave you at the start of the show okay so until next week or so no no so next month until the next week or so look after yourselves be nice to each other and we'll be back in about seven to ten days with some more easy beats and bander and young conversation all the best cheers